You know, it's it's unscripted, and that's how I've been going with a few of our episodes lately. Because I've gotten some good feedback from you that you kind of like the laid back, a little bit less scripted episodes. So here's what we're going to do. So sorry if I go off on a little bit of some tangents on some of the questions, but、uh, I hope that we don't go on too long. But since you took the time to message us in, ask some questions that you've been thinking about, I want to take the time to answer them as best as I can. So I've separated them out into、uh, the channel that you sent. So we'll do the Twitter questions first, then we'll do the Instagram questions, and leave it at the Discord questions. I'm not going to read the full message that I got from everyone. I'm just going to read the actual question part of it. So I might be paraphrasing some of your questions. I hope that I at least got the core of what you are asking correct. So let's just get right into it and start with Twitter or X, I guess. But Our first question, and we're ooh, we're coming out swinging. Okay, so basically, this person is saying, "Hey, one of your most common complaints about the games that you review is about the rulebooks. Do we think that our rulebook complaints are cultural?" And I think this is a good question. It's a very fair question because you are right. The information density between the Japanese language and the English language are quite a bit different. It can. Be extremely different to see how maybe a Japanese business would lay out a PowerPoint, or a document that you receive in Japanese is laid out very differently than how an English language document or an English language PowerPoint would be laid out. So this is some of the part of it, but I don't think we're basing it on the layout. I sure have my preferences, but I. I'm not basing how good a rulebook is based on the layout. I think what you're actually, what is actually happening, is twofold. I think one, it's a bit of sampling bias in the sense that the games that we are covering are mostly not ones from the Oink Games or the Sashi and Sashi or the ones with lots of money like ArcLight and Hobby Japan. You know, the companies that have more experience or the companies that have more money to hire rulebook editors. And to have more、um, experience writing good rulebooks, we're just not covering a lot of games that are like that. So I don't, I do think there is a bit of sampling bias there. But how we actually evaluate rulebooks is much like one would evaluate a teacher, because both of them really have the same job, and that is to make an unfamiliar concept familiar. Do you? After hearing the teacher teach, or after reading the rulebook, understand something that you didn't before, and that is how we are evaluating it. You have to ask yourself: Okay, do I, after reading this rulebook, know how to play the game? And if during the game I have a question, can I look back in the rulebook and find my answer? Much like a teacher, did you learn what you were supposed to learn? And if you have a question, can you go back to the source? If the answer is yes, then it is a well-written rulebook. If the answer is no, and I have to spend the next hour looking online and reading through reviews and other people's comments, trying to figure out what the answer to my question is, and then maybe I have to email the designer because nobody knows how this part of this game is played, then no, 
there is at least a fraction of the rulebook that is not good. So going back to your question, do we think our rule complaints are cultural? No. I think as far as I am hoping that we consistently evaluate rulebooks is that I am answering those questions. Do I, after I'm done reading the rulebook, know how to play this game? Then that is a good rulebook. Now, I do have my preferences for how I want a rulebook laid out. And we actually talked about part of this in our interview with Sai Beppu that she does where she'll put like a picture or an example right next to the rule so that you don't have to flip through the rule book and find an example of how this rule exactly is played out. And I do think that that kind of layout does make a rule book excellent, but I don't necessitate it to say that it is a good rule book. So I hope that answers your question. All right. Our next Twitter question, do I get mistaken for Japanese or Japanese American? Um, <laughs> I, this, this question makes me so happy because that means that like I at least sound competent on the podcast, but no, the, 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 the short answer is absolutely no, but here's the long answer too. Um, and I hope that even though this might not be the most relevant to the board gaming scene, that for those of you who might be interested in studying Japanese, that is at least an interesting answer. So like many languages, the Japanese language has an exam to test your ability in the language. It's called the JLPT, which is the Japanese Language Proficiency Test. And it has five levels, the N5, the N4, 3, 2, and 1, which N5 is the easiest, N1 is the hardest. N5 is like your survival Japanese, like good morning, good evening, sorry, thank you, things like that. It's supposed to be like how much Japanese you can speak after maybe a couple months of living in Japan or about a year of university study. Okay. And then you have the N4 after that. That's supposed to be kind of the beginner Japanese and three is the intermediate Japanese. And then the N1 and the N2 have changed in the past decade. It used to be that um, N1 was what you needed to have a translator license or kind of interpreting. And, but now because of the new style of the N1, um, which is so hard that native Japanese people cannot even pass it. Um, it is now the N2. So kind of keeping that in your head of like, okay, N5 survival, N4 beginner, N3 intermediate, N2 is kind of um, the work level, if you if you want to say it that way. Like the N2 is what you would need for, say, I, I, I believe that's like translating. You could be a lawyer, things like that. And then N1 is like extremely, extremely advanced Japanese. You're kind of like a, ma a mastery of the language. Um, so when I first came to Japan, I was kind of like, I'm going to stay here for a year or two. Um, it would look really good on my resume if I could just pass the N4, which would be good. Like I have a beginner passing level of Japanese, which sounds pretty cool. So that is kind of what I studied. And originally my job gave us some Japanese lessons. It wasn't a lot, but a little bit. And so the teachers that I had were basically like, Hey, you don't really need, if you don't want to become a translator or things like that, you don't really need to learn this thing called pitch, which can be really important when you are differentiating between words. So the word for candy and the word for rain, for example, is the same word. But based on the pitch that you give, which is common in a lot of languages, then it changes the word. So you can go ame, which is candy, and ame, which is rain. So it's going, it's ascending and then descending for rain, ascending for candy, descending for rain. But these are both words that you actually learn when you're on the N5 level. 
But because my teacher said like, hey, you don't need to learn pitch unless you're going for like N2 or N1, I never did. And now I have passed N3 and I'm on my way to N2. And now I'm basically having to like relearn all of the words that I learned a couple of years ago. And so it is my suggestion then, like if you were going to study any language, but specifically Japanese, because that's what I have the experience in, like just learn it properly the first time, because now I am wasting so much time going back and relearning all of these words so I can learn how they are supposed to be pronounced so I can actually sound like I actually know the Japanese language and don't have what's called kind of a gaijin accent, a foreigner accent with it. So do I get mistaken for Japanese? Um, sometimes by other people, but by Japanese people, absolutely not. They, they, I have that foreigner accent. There is no mistaking me, <laughs> but it did make me feel good that you asked that question. So thank you for that. All right. So let's move over to Instagram. And the first question that I got here is why did we start the board game dojo? That's a good question. And I can never remember. I, I know that I've talked about it with people, but I can never remember if I talked about it on the microphone and recording or not. So the dojo was kind of started for a couple of reasons. Some were positive, some were a bit like in response to some negativity, I guess. Um, so I think the main reason was really to give a voice to the specifically Japanese game scene, but the East Asian game scene. I know that there's other channels that do this like Cardboard East, but I wanted to give it more, I guess, I guess more of a Japanese emphasis, if I'm being completely honest, but bringing in games from Taiwan, bringing in games from South Korea and Hong Kong and these other uh, East Asian places where these games are being published. And I think the thing that got me over the line, or the thing that got us over the line to at least start thinking about making a channel and making a podcast was I don't remember the specific podcast or podcast episode, but one of the hosts had said something to the fact of, I really like these Japanese games and you win some and you lose some, you have no choice but to import it and hope that it's good. And it was that kind of sentiment that made me go, okay, you know what? Let's start a channel. Let's start a podcast where our group can play all these games that are from Japan, and then we can give an English review of these games so people know what games are actually worth the import. Because it's a different mentality to say you can go to your game store and get this game at a normal retail price than it is to think about that you need to go online, pay the retail price for the game, and in addition, you need to pay the import fees for it. It's kind of a different ball game entirely. And then once COVID hit as well, like there was, you know, nobody was able to go to Japan and get the games themselves. And Japan was really slow to open back up as well. So it's just all these different factors that was like, okay, let's, let's do the board game dojo and let's kind of help people figure out what to spend their hard earned money on. And that's our import or not series that's on YouTube, but we cover a lot of them on the podcast as well. So that's kind of the idea behind the dojo. I guess the part of the negative thing is that there was also that um, kind of thing where we heard a lot of podcast hosts kind of give these kind of not so good games a pass because they were just these like quirky Japanese games. And so 
that's why every once in a while we will post negative reviews of games. We will talk about games that are bad and that are coming out from from Japan and South Korea and these and these other countries that are in East Asia because it's like we have just as many bad games as good games. You can't just write them off because they have like a funny theme or something like that. There are a lot of games that just aren't really worth it. So that's kind of the idea behind the dojo. Let us know how we're doing with that on Twitter and on Instagram and via email. We're always uh, willing to accept feedback, whether it's positive, negative. We want to hear it as we're growing. We're only a year and a half old. So we're really, really new, I think, compared to a lot of these other uh, board game podcasts that are out there. So good question. The next question is, where do we think Japanese exports will go from here? Um and it's and this uh, message was kind of more in the thing of like, hey, Japanese games are getting popular. Where do we think they'll go? Um, I think that there's kind of three camps that Japanese exports or companies that are, I guess, importing Japanese games could kind of go from here. Uh, the first camp are companies that are just going to take a game that has been successful in Japan and basically translating it to their native language. Uh, and making it accessible for people. So it might be a game that was successful in Japan, but isn't available abroad. So this might be something that you think of like Portland Game Collective. I know a lot of our listeners are fans of their games. So they did 535, they're doing Trick Takers. Um, Games like that that have already been successful are a little bit harder to get, but have been successful in Japan. Hey, let's make it so that you're able to get it abroad as well. They're not going to change the game a whole lot. And so... Um, because the game is already really quite good. So you have that kind of camp. I think a possible future camp might be taking games, and I don't think this is like a great business sense thing, but I don't have a business, um, is taking games that weren't successful but have a really good idea, but due to maybe a lack of experience or whatever it might be, the game wasn't successful. So if a big company abroad that has these designers that have more experience, maybe more talented rule book writers, things like that, then they can take this game that has a really good skeleton, a really good idea, and kind of work with it. So I think one of those games might be Gadget Trick. Gadget Trick is the one that really stands out in my mind, where in our review of it, and I'll leave the link to that in the show notes, um, it has this really good idea of that you're thieves trying to you know, play tricks. It's a trick-taking game. But if you set off the alarms that are these different conditions that'll change every game, then you're automatically eliminated. It's such a good idea, but it was just not well executed. The components aren't very good. The rule book isn't very good. Um, You have to kind of self um, divide the deck of possible conditions, the alarms that'll eliminate people. You kind of have to self decide which ones work for which player counts. And so it almost seemed, and I said this in the interview, uh, not the interview, but the review, I said, "Eh, this kind of seems like a prototype. And if a foreign company could take that kind of prototype and make it a lot better, then I think it could be a success abroad. So that might be another avenue that it could go down. But I think the third is, and I mean this in the best way possible, companies like Allplay that kind of take these risks of games that aren't that successful in Japan. Because a lot of people might find them just to be like an okay or good game and bringing it to an audience abroad. These might be games that, um, you know what, actually a good example would be 
one of the games we covered on our Monday episode this week, which is what they call Mindspace, but originally it was Four and a Half to Tommy Matz, which is a game that if you said, okay, Eric, do you recommend this game? It's going to cost $30 at retail, so it's going to cost me like $40 to $50 to import this. I would say, no, not at all. It is not worth that price. I think it is a good game and not a great game. But now that it's available abroad and you can get it easily for maybe, I don't know how much they're going to charge for it, let's say $25. Okay, that's like half the cost that it would have cost you to import it. It's definitely worth it at that price. Or another one was when they did uh, Birth the Dice game. I think it's called Birth. And they made it into Dandelions. Another game that a lot of people find to be like okay or good but not exceptional and definitely wouldn't have been worth importing the original from. So I think those are the three camps, the ones that are like, hey, let's bring a game that is already successful. We don't really need to change anything about it. We're just going to make it accessible to a new audience. That's probably the most common one. Camp B would be, uh, can we take a game that has promise and make it into a game that can succeed? And then C would be taking games that are maybe okay or good, had some limited success, and bringing it to a new audience that might actually enjoy it um, and kind of taking a chance on something like that. Um, I hope that answers your question. All right, next question. I think I'm going to get a uh, drink of my coffee here. Hold on. Excellent podcasting quality there, I'm sure. All right, next one. Why do you choose to cover the games you do? Oh, this is a Good question. It kind of goes back to the why did we start the board game dojo question of, okay, so now, you know, shameless plug, now at least one game a month will be chosen by our coffee subscribers. So if you want to subscribe to our coffee, you can do that. I'll leave the link below. Um, That's part of it. But why do we cover the games you do? I think because a lot of people abroad know about Oink. And I think Sashi and Sashi at this point, Ethan is getting there that a lot of people abroad know about um, people know love letter, things like that. And so it doesn't take somebody who has access to, uh, the scene of Japanese games to cover those. Um, we're trying to choose games that we think best reflect the general atmosphere, not atmosphere. I think atmosphere is the wrong word, but the scene of Japanese board games. So you're going to see a lot of card games that are on our channel. And that's because a lot of games that people are playing in Japan are card games. Um, But also showing publishers that are becoming more popular, that we see in board game stores a lot more now. So we've covered a few games from Smart Ape Games uh, because we're starting to see them pop up in a lot more stores. But at the same time, we are also cognizant of the fact that there are certain genres of game that we are not the most experienced in or we are not the source of, or at least the primary source of information for for people. So I think a good example is the trick-taking scene. The Japanese trick-taking scene is quite big. And there's a reason that channels like Taylor's Trick-Taking Table and podcasts like Trick Talkers, um, they often cover trick-takers from Japan just because you can't really cover modern trick-taking without including Japan and the trick-taking scene there. So we're kind of trying to balance out the fact that like, yes, we're trying to represent what the Japanese board game scene is like, but I don't think people are coming to us 
for the trick-taking scene. So we've kind of made it a rule that if we know somebody else has covered a game recently, we try not to cover it again unless it's like a very big release. And if you want us to cover it anyway, like you're saying, like, hey, you know, even if uh, trick talkers talk about it, we still want you to cover it at the Board Game Dojo. Like, let us know and we will do that. But um, yeah, we're just trying to make sure that people kind of have the most amount of information about how much gaming there is in the Japanese board game scene and how wide the board gaming scene is becoming, that that's how we kind of choose what games that we play. That was a very rambling answer. I'm, I'm hoping that that made sense. All right, the last one from Instagram, where do we buy our games? Um, mostly Yellow Submarine and Tsurugaya. I think um, I mentioned it in our Japan board game buying guide that we have a video of on YouTube. But actually, if I were to exclude Kickstarter purchases, um, I would have to say that I think, I think my collection is somewhere like 200 or 300 games or something like that. Um, you don't often see it because I don't usually have like a board game in, shelf in my background. Um, I think probably like 90 to 95% of them are used. I really like buying used games. Um, so it's probably Sudugaya. Sudugaya would be like 90 to 95% of where my games come from. But yeah, Yellow Submarine and Sudugaya are where basically my full collection have come from if you're excluding uh, Kickstarter. All right, let's move on to our Discord questions. The first one, is there a reverse market for niche foreign games in Japan? And I like that the, I like that the example that was given was like, do people import like Hungry Hungry Hippos? Um, of all the games you could have picked, um, it's, it's kind of a tough question. I would say like yes and no. I'd say um, the the biggest scene that I see Japanese publishers importing from is definitely Germany. There is a big German game influence in Japan. And when I've talked to a lot of uh, designers that are in Japan, they'll often say that their inspiration was some like really niche, like 90s or 2000s German card game that is really, really popular for some reason in Japan. And so I would say that... Like, if you're going to ask me, okay, you know how there is, like, a scene of people in the U.S., for example, that will import these tiny Japanese games, like, maybe, like, Yoda Yoda Penguin, right? Is there a scene like that? Uh, I don't think that there's really an equivalent to that. Like, there's no publisher in Japan that is, like, importing something, as far as I know, that's, like, importing small games, like, like a Bridge City Poker or, or on the constant lookout for these small, small designers from the U.S. or things like that. There's nothing that I know of, but that could also be changing. The board game scene is still really growing in Japan. So I think that that, if you were going to, nobody asked me this, but if you were to ask me, like, what do I think the future of gaming, what do I think the next five years of Japan board game is going to be, I think that we are going to see maybe a niche market open up of certain types of games. I know I've seen a lot more Warhammer open up a lot lately, uh, like Warhammer uh, specific stores. I've seen a lot more Magic the Gathering specific stores opening up a lot more lately. So I think we're kind of getting to that point of like, all right, now we don't need to be Yellow Submarine. We don't need to be Sudagaya. Like they own the market now. We can have a niche store that people will shop at and then 
from there, you're going to start to see um, these niche foreign games start popping up. So good question. And then the next question um, is kind of asking about two kinds of games. Well, one game and one type of game. So what are chicken race games? And what is cat and chocolate? I see it everywhere. Um, so chicken race games is a genre of games. You know them as push your luck games. That's just what they're called in uh, Japan. It's kind of like a game of chicken. If you've ever seen Footloose, I don't know why my reference for that is an 80s movie, but there it is where they're like driving two tractors out of each other and, you know, some until somebody jumps off because they're too chicken um, or they're just like less stupid. I, I, I never got the concept of that game, but uh, push your luck game. It's called Chicken Race Games. And then what is Cat and Chocolate? Okay, Cat and Chocolate is a really popular line of games that you will see in basically every store, even if it's like a hobby store that doesn't devote themselves to a, to board games or have like a very tiny section for board games, you are going to see Cat and Chocolate. Um, they have different themes of it, but the basic premise is that it's going to give you a problem that can happen and you'll have cards in your hand that are different pictures of things. And you have to use those picture cards that you have in your hand to kind of solve the problem. So you might flip over a card in which it'll say, uh, your bike has broken. You know, how are you gonna get to work? And you'll have in your hand, it'll be something like a pair of broken shoes, uh, uh, a cat, and a ball of string. Like, what, what are you going to do? And you, and next to the card that says that, you have a broken bike. How are you going to get to work or how are you going to get to school or whatever? It'll have a number on it and it might be something like two. And so it says that, hey, you have to use two cards from your hand to solve this problem. So you might say something like, okay, well, I'm going to take the broken pair of shoes and I'm going to fix it with this. Uh, I'm going to make shoelaces from this thing of string and I'm instead going to run to work instead of using my bike to work today. And then everybody around the table will give you either a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Thumbs up, meaning like, yeah, that, that, that would work, or a thumbs down of, no, that was an awful answer. Now, technically, you're supposed to be split into two teams, Team Cat and Team Chocolate. I do not know why those are the two teams, but there is where you get the title of Cat and Chocolate. And you're also supposed to be getting points for the thumbs up that you get for your story. However, I have never seen anybody play this game with either one of those things. I have only ever seen it played more as an activity of something to get you thinking, something to kind of be silly with, um, things like that. I've used it in schools to have students practice their English, even though the cards are in Japanese. Um, you know, they'll try to explain to me in English how they would solve this problem with the cards in your hand. Cause like I said, they're a lot of picture cards and based on whatever box you get, you might get something like, um, or, there are, there are different themes in the different boxes, so some of them are going to be like everyday problems, and that's, I think, the standard box now, but there's different ones that you can buy at the store. Um, but that's Cat and Chocolate. And that is, in fact, all of the questions that we got for this episode. You guys sent some awesome questions for only telling you about this on Monday, and then we're recording this on Thursday morning, so you've had like two or three days to send questions, and you uh, all sent us a bunch of good questions and I hope that it has been informative for you both about the Japanese board game scene, about the board game dojo, and about just like life in general. You don't have to wait for a mailbag episode to send us any of your questions or feedback or comments about the show. Um, you can send it to us anytime at Twitter at 
the BG Dojo and Instagram at Board Game Dojo, or you can email us at Board Game Dojo Podcast at gmail.com. Something that, um, yeah, ho- hopefully, hopefully you're still here and you don't just like turn it off. Um, we were talking earlier about like why we started the dojo, and something that we've kind of thought about a lot is how we want to kind of grow the channel. Do we want to start covering more games? from oink do we want to start covering more games from sashi and sashi more games from these bigger publishers that people have heard about and we have specifically kind of said no we don't really want to do that because people already know about it. it's kind of going against the point of why we started which means that you know even though the by far most viewed video on our channel is that of an oink game and our most listened to podcast episode was that of oink games um we're not kind of growing the podcast usually through the search feature. We have like that YouTube algorithm that tells us like, Hey, how many people are searching for the title of your videos? And it's like 1%. It's very, very small. We grow by your word of mouth and you telling people about our show, you uh, rating us five stars, you commenting and things like that. And so thank you to everybody who has helped us grow the channel, who has even told one person about our show um, yeah, we really, really appreciate it. We are almost to 500 subscribers on YouTube, which for us is huge. So thank you. We just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to try to do these mailbag episodes more often so that we can have more of a conversation with you. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend and rest of your week. As always, thank you so much for listening. Arigatou gozaimasu. Until next time, janne. Yeah.